Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 14? We finished with 6 last week. We're going to read 6 through 11. We'll spend our time in 7 through 11 today. So Thomas had asked in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So as we finished our time last week, the disciples' hearts have sunk. Um, Jesus has told them he's going to go away, and they can't come where he's coming. He's also predicted that their leader, uh, Peter, is going to deny the Lord three times. Um, There's talk of betrayal, and so it's kind of a lot on a Thursday night to deal with. And they're overwhelmed, and so Jesus, we looked last week, spoke to their hearts to encourage their hearts that there's a way for them to get through what they are about to experience. And so he's going to encourage them a little bit more today, but a little bit more he's going to address some misunderstanding that they have in regard to who he is. Um, They know some aspects about the Lord, um, but not everything is completely clear in their mind. And so it's key to see how Jesus addresses their misunderstanding. When our hearts are troubled, what we need are not nice statements, bumper stickers. Um, We need hearty words of God, solid doctrine and theology that will sustain us in the midst of what we do. So he doesn't give them some nice first century quotes. I like quotes. I really do like quotes. But he doesn't give us any of those. What he gives them are, again, really strong words. He also doesn't go, hey, go down the street. There's a screen printer down there. Let's get some tunics made up that say, you know, with the saying on the front, I can do all things through Christ. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. He just gives them, shockingly, words. Again, words of power that will enable them to get through the days ahead. And so it is in these dark moments sometimes that we have to wrestle with and we have to go through where we are sustained in these tough days to make it through. Sadly, though, all around us today you see this, it's kind of dominated Christianity for a while, is is it seems like sometimes we like man's sayings about God's Word rather than really liking and loving God's Word. And that's critical for us, and that's what Jesus is going to do um, in their midst. Big moments of worry need strong doctrine. Moments of grief and moments of great uncertainty require strong and clear truth. And yet in the midst of that, there's an issue that can arise that we will deal with today. And that is, is that there sometimes is a thinking or sometimes there's a desire that we kind of know all the stories. Could there be something new and something fresh? And so there's an idea that creeps in We need Jesus plus something else or something more. 
and what Jesus is going to tell the 11 today and what I want to just shout really loud. I'm going to get real excited today, so I'm just telling you ahead of time. I'm going to be loud. And I want to shout it louder in the room this morning because I want all of us to get this. Jesus is enough, period. That's it. We don't need Jesus plus. Now, there are things within Christianity that encourage us and help us. But ultimately, if we just, if, if all that we could ever really need, I'm letting you know, is this revelation of God in the Bible. This is what we need more than anything else because it gives us the greatest clarity. So as he continues to deal with the 11, these are really important things. I wrote, I wrote this sermon um, probably back in June, a long time ago. And uh, so I began to review it again on Thursday, and I thought, well, yeah, this is good. And then the more over the weekend I began to go through it, the more I began to really remember and realize why these words are really significant. Not only just for the 11, but they are really important for us today. Because I believe that today some freedom could come in some of our lives in regard to our understanding of who God is. So let's look at the first thing. It's in verse 7. Now, I want to talk about knowing Jesus means that we know who the Father is. So verse 7, in response to Thomas, he says, If you had known me, and really to all of them as well, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. When we truly know Jesus... There are so many incredible benefits that are connected in this knowing relationship, in this saving relationship that we have with Him. So here in the upper room, He wants them to know that one of the greatest blessings that they have is that knowing Him means that they know exactly who the Father is, that there's not any doubt in regard to the nature of the Father, for He is telling them, you have been with me for three years. You've watched me. I've discipled you. You've watched my works. You've listened to my words. We have been in relationship with one another. And I have revealed to you exactly who the Father is. And so there should be no doubt in your mind, in your life, in regard to the Father. And so he wants to make this clear that knowing Him means also that we know the Father. If you see there in verse 7, it says, If you had known me, this had indicates that everything wasn't completely clear in their mind, and particularly Philip. Philip's going to speak in just a moment, but likely there are others in the room who are exactly where Philip is. They didn't truly know the full depth of the nature and the character of God the Father and God the Son. And so Jesus says to them, and some of the earlier translations in the Greek, literally this verse means this, if you have come to know me, then you will know the Father. You will know who He is. Now, they knew He was the Son of God. They had embraced Him as the Messiah, as the Anointed One. But there were aspects of His nature and His character to where they lacked a full understanding of what all of this meant in their lives. But Jesus is telling them, I'm telling you the invisible God, if you want to know who the invisible God is, look, look right here. You've watched me. I have made him known to you. So when you know me and when you see me, I've been telling you and modeling and communicating to you that when you look at my life, you are seeing the Father 
as well. And so again, they were accurate on some things, but there were also some things that they did not fully understand. It didn't click. And you, you know this, if you've been in the faith for a while, there are moments when it clicks a little bit better, right? The light comes on, there's greater understanding about things, and so at this point, they don't really fully know and understand everything. You know what changes our understanding and what will change their understanding is what will happen on Friday afternoon. And greatly, it will ha- really click their understanding and the light will come on when the women come back on Sunday morning and they say, we have seen the Lord. And he's alive. And Peter and John run to the tomb. And I love what the scripture says that, that Peter gets there first or Peter gets there second. John gets there younger and he just barges in. And it says that John looked in the tomb and it says, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, he believed. He believed everything that Jesus had been saying. And it became clear to him in that moment. Listen, the church must proclaim the cross and the resurrection constantly. Here's why. It defines for us the nature of God. And it helps us to understand who he is. And so, so though on this Thursday night it's a little uncertain, though they, they've got some firm things down, it becomes really clear for them on Sunday. And particularly on Sunday night when he just shows up in a room in Jerusalem on Sunday night. And he spends the next hours unveiling the revelation of the Old Testament scriptures in regard to who he is. And so we preach the cross here. We preach the glorious resurrection here. And we preach and we affirm that this has come to us through the revelation of Scripture so that we can know who Jesus is, we can know who the Father is, and we can know the Holy Spirit. Why is all of this so important? Why is Jesus emphasizing this? Why do we this morning, do you and I need to hear this? And the reason we need to hear this is this reason. Knowing Jesus in personal relationship, and knowing the revelation of who He is, is the most absolute key thing that will ever happen in our lives. We must know the nature and the glory of God the Father, of God the Son, and God the Spirit. We must know the nature of God. We must know that. And so, as Thomas has asked this question, and Jesus has said, Thomas, you know the way. I am the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. And then Philip in a moment is going to ask a question, well, could we have a little bit more to help us kind of be more convinced of that? I just want to say this morning how critical this is for us. As His people, we must know God's glorious nature. And so Jesus says, listen, if you truly knew me, you would understand what is about to com- commence. For all of this is the Father's purpose. I was sent to go to the cross And then I will rise again as I have told you. And so the the disciples had had an upfront seat for three years to the greatest events in the history of the world. Again, I just want to take our minds back. Can you just imagine living with him for three years? So the problem I want to pose this morning for a second is this. Was there lack of understanding because they had a bad discipler? No, their issue was themselves. They needed to overcome some of their preconceived ideas about who Christ was, and they needed to embrace what he had been telling them 
over and over again. So to know Jesus means to know the true nature of God and to see the glory of the Father. Notice what he says at the end of verse 7. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So again, what will make it clear for them, it will be the cross and the resurrection. John, in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 18, writes these words, No one has ever seen God. And then he says this, The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. So when Christ was here, one of his great missions, yes, was to come and die on the cross. One of his other great purposes was this, was to reveal to you and I who the Father is. So that we can know the loving nature and the heart of the Father. And so he has made him known. The writer of Hebrews, this is, this is what it says, is this great book. This great book was written in chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, all of those saints in the past, God spoke to our ancestors. He has always been, by the way, a speaking God. So in the past, God had always spoken to our ancestors in, in many forms and in various ways and at many times. But in these last days, here's what he did. He, his son came and his son spoke to us and became the spokesman. So in these last days, he did that, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And the son, listen to this, is the, is the radiance of God's glory. He's the shining light of the glory of God. And then the writer writes, the exact representation of his being. So on this night, as it's not completely clear for them, Jesus says to them, listen, when you have seen me, I have come to reveal who the Father is. Since John chapter 5, this is what he's been saying. I, I have received from the Father his words, and I've told you the Father's words. What the Father's doing, I do. And so I've made known to you what the Father says. I've made known to you how the Father works and what the Father does. So I've made it clear to you that I and the Father, we are one. We are unified. So when you look at me, I have revealed to you the very nature of the Father. So before we move to point two, let me just say a couple more things. As Christians, we have to know, we must know the nature of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. This cannot be optional for us. It cannot be optional. It is not something we can ignore. It must be at the very forefront of our minds who God is. And in a culture such as ours today in 2021, we will become strong or we will remain strong by our understanding in the Scripture of the nature of God. It is knowing God that becomes the rock and becomes that foundation that we need in our lives. And I love what he says there, from now on, you do know him. I want to talk about that just for a moment. There must be in every one of our lives this morning, a from now on moment where we can say, not that we know God perfectly, we will never know him perfectly on this side. Sin We still wrestle with sin. There's still issues there. But we do need to get to a place where we can say this, I do know who God is as He is revealed in Scripture. 
And I'm confident of what the Scripture says about Him. And I stand on those things. I trust in those things. They have become my very foundation. So we must have in our lives one of these moments that from now on we know truly who He is. And to know Him is to know Him as He is revealed in the sacred Scriptures. Because Scripture is this revelation of God. It is not a revelation of us. We, we've all come to the place where we recognize the Bible is not about us, right? It is about God. He is, he is, does it reveal things about us? Yes, but it is about Him. It is a revelation of who He is so that we can know Him. Well, again, I just want to remind us, don't be too hard on the disciples. And the reason is, we're just like them in moments of our life. So He has just said these words. When you see me, you see the Father. Philip says, well, hey, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. What did he just tell them? I've shown you the Father. Look at my life. Listen to what I said. And then Philip interjects and just says, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus is more than enough. But that is not where Philip is in the moment. Now look up here. He feels in the moment that he needs more. Does he need more? He doesn't need more. Sometimes we gotta, we got to say, shh, be quiet. The feelings, the feelings, Christianity. He feels in the moment... If he could just have one more, if Jesus just visibly manifest the Father in the room, then that would be enough for him. If he could just see that, then boy, that could just really settle. And Jesus is like, no, it should be settled for you. I have revealed enough about who the Father is by my life. And so Philip wants some visible manifestation that will satisfy what he feels in the moment. Since Jesus is going to go away, maybe Philip, he's like, Philip is kind of thinking to himself, could, Jesus, could I, have a, could I have a moment like Moses had up on the mountain? You know where Moses said, Lord, I want to see you. And, and the Lord's like, no, you can't see me. If you see me, you die. But I'll tell you what I'll do tomorrow. Come up on the mountain. I'll pass by you. I'll pick you up. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. I'll cover your eyes. And then I'll uncover your eyes and you can see my backside. And Philip maybe thinking kind of like that. Boy, if I could just have a Moses moment then everything in my life would get settled. I would really believe then. And Philip reveals one of the real issues that we have spiritually in regard to maturing in our faith and knowing God deeper. And it's just simply this, and I just have to be honest, is that Jesus is not enough sometimes for us in our lives. He is not seen as the fullness of the revelation of God in the Scriptures. He's not seen... In that moment, by Philip, as the fullness of the revelation of God in their midst. Just think for a moment, how many things has Philip seen over three years? <laughs> Can you imagine the things that they saw? Even in private, we read about some of those things. John writes that there's not enough libraries and not enough books to write all of the things that Jesus had done. And John, John Philip, Peter, they had an upfront close perspective of this philip has seen all of this 
And he just says, I need more. Could I have a little bit more? Remember the day in the feeding of the 5,000? What a day that must have been for them. Jesus takes a little boy's lunch and he multiplies it and he breaks it and they, they go out and they each have a basket. Think about this for a moment. Thousands of people are reaching their hands in and the basket never gets empty. It just continues to be full. And at the very, I, I sometimes wonder, do they look at each other and, and just go, is your basket doing what my basket's doing? And, you know, they're just like, you know, just shocked at the reality of what they were witnessing before then. And, you know, at the very end of that, there was enough for 12 basketfuls left over. God just does abundant things. So does Philip really need to see any more? No, he doesn't. He has been given enough information, enough things to see, to believe. He's seen the miracles of Jesus. He's heard the teachings of Jesus. He has been with them. So what was his issue and what sometimes becomes our issue of not seeing Jesus as enough for us? Well, it's an issue of faith ultimately. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. They were not fully sure, but faith, though, is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And then in Hebrews 11 verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is absolutely impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And one of the things that you'll hear today within Western Christianity, it's a bit prevalent today, is a longing for God to be seen and experienced in the thunder and the lightning, in the pillar of fire, in the majesty of the cloud by day, but it is not enough to just trust in the revelation of God in Scripture. We need more. We need more, what a lot of people say. And our hearts long for the visible splendor I'd love to see it today, but that's just not the way it works. It is seen in the, His glorious scene and simplicity of day by day eating, reading the text of the Scripture and coming to know who He is in the Bible. So many around the church today cry out for the visible, but they, I believe, miss the wonder and the beauty of the revelation of Jesus in the mix of the day-to-day life of how he works and how he sustained us. And so Philip says, Lord, if you'll just make the Father known, if I could really see the Father, then I'm con- I'll be convinced. That, that will be enough. I will be satisfied. What should the prayer have been? The prayer shouldn't have been, and the question shouldn't have been, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. The prayer should have been, what they prayed earlier in Luke 17. They came to the Lord and they said, Lord, will you increase our faith? That should have been the prayer. Lord, we don't really get everything tonight, but as we prayed earlier, Lord, will you increase our faith? And in that text in in Luke 17, verse 6, it says, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to that mulberry tree, Be uprooted, planted in the sea, And it would obey you. You see, the more we know Him in Scripture, the more our faith deepens in understanding of His nature. 
Let me remind you and I of why Jesus is so important. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1 verse 18, he says, And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, everything of our lives, Christ would be preeminent. That He would hold the highest place in our lives. And so on this night, as Philip says, Jesus, it's not enough that we've just kind of been with you, and I know you've been kind of been telling us that you and the Father are one, but could you just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus, and the point of the Scripture is that He is enough for us to know who the Father is, and He is enough for us to know who God is. And here's why this is so important. Colossians 1.19, the very next verse says this, For in Christ all, every aspect of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Later in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the point of everything. So if you're here today and like, gosh, can we just have some more books in here? Letters? Could we find some? And that'll be enough. Can I tell you what it won't be? It won't be enough. If we don't trust this, we don't need something new. God has gloriously made who He is readily known and available for us to get and to understand. He is enough. So it must get to a place where He is enough for us. Now notice this. Philip has decided... Sometimes we decide this, what enough will be. So he tells Jesus, let me tell you what's enough for me, Jesus. Not you, but if you'll show the Father, that will be enough. I just want to remind us this morning, we don't get to determine that. God sets the boundaries, and and the boundaries were this. In the revelation of Christ, we get to know who the Father is. And in the coming of the Spirit, the Spirit works to who? What? Reveal the glory of Christ so that we would know who he is. And so Philip is determining what he thinks is enough for him to believe and to be convinced of things. And it is not ours to determine. God has determined that Jesus sets what is enough. And what is enough is to know him in the revelation of Scripture. And, and the problem is, is we sometimes are far too easily content with the minimum instead of just longing to know more of the glorious nature of Christ. He is enough. Now, I want to make sure I clarify something because I'm going I'm to get in your business. Is that okay if I get in your business for a second? There are lots of resources available to us. Listen to them, read them. Listen, listen, read experience when you're walking, all of that kind of stuff. But I want to say this, you don't have to have these things. So I want to make this clear. What does this look like, Jesus plus something? Do you know that we would be okay if, if there was never another Christian book ever written? We'd be okay. Because the Bible's more important. Do you know that we really don't need any more Christian blogs? We'd survive that. We didn't have them for thousands of years. And the church survived it. 
Do we need more conferences? Jesus plus conferences. Do we need more experiences? Do we need more music? Again, none of these are wrong. None of these are wrong at all. Do we need more technology to help us? No, I think technology actually hasn't helped us, by the way. We live in a day and time where there's more information about Christianity than there's ever been. And the church in the West knows less about God than centuries before us. What about a new revelation? Could we, have, could we get a new book that we could just kind of tuck in behind 2 Corinthians? Boy, that, wouldn't that be fun? Do we really need that? No, we don't. And by the way, that's not going to happen. Do we need better vision? Do we need better circumstances? And I just want to put forth this morning, we don't. Learn from other pastors. Read Christian blogs. Listen to fresh Christian music. But I also want to say this, you don't have to have that. This is what you got to have. Those books that are great and have impacted our life, they're not going to heaven, by the way. They're not. But this is. The word of the Lord stands how long? Forever. So, as Philip on this night says, Lord, Jesus, love you. You're the Messiah. But if you could just give us more than you, could you show us the Father, then, then, man, we're good. And so, look at verse 9. Jesus addresses an issue that comes from what we just heard. So Jesus said directly to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father. Jesus' response to Philip reveals that perhaps some of the others have not gotten really the, the, to the place of greater maturity of faith. What is Jesus saying? The three years should have been what? Enough, right? That's what he's saying. Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't really understand? After all this time together and you've watched me speak, you've watched me do. I've sent you out, Philip. I sent you out in my name. And you cast out demons, you preach, you healed the sick. Twice, they were sent out on short-term mission trips. So, Philip, I've empowered you. You've watched me. You've heard me. I've revealed the Father to you. So, So why have you been with me so long and you don't get it? Again, this is an issue of faith. This is an issue of not seeing Jesus as enough for us in our lives. It should have been enough time, according to Jesus here, that Philip should have had a better understanding of the nature of the Father and the nature of Jesus. They've had enough time to mature. So again, I just say this out loud. Was the problem with Jesus discipling? Did Jesus need to learn some things about discipling people? No, he didn't. The problem was with the disciplee. That's even a word. I just made it up. But the ones who were being discipled, that's where the issue was. So let me give you three things that Jesus says here that are important about Christian maturity. These will be up on the screen. So the first part of verse 9, he says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Length of time in discipleship should lead to our knowing Christ. Should. 
if you walk with the Lord for a long time and you've been reading the Scripture and you and I have been pursuing Him, then it should lead us, and we've been putting our faith to practice and being obedient, it should lead us to know the nature of Jesus. And so Jesus tells him that the time that they've had together over these three years should have brought about a more confident knowing and understanding in Philip's life. He tells him, you've had enough time to know this. So Philip, have you been with me so long? Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? And so as Philip asks this, it's not a visible manifestation of the Father that is needed to confirm Jesus to Philip. And some of us, let's just be honest, some of us have been going to church all our lives. You know, we were, you know, back in the day, we kind of don't do that anymore, but back in the day, you know, you were born on a Thursday and you were at church in the crib on Sunday. You know, we kind of pause for about six weeks now and, and stuff or however long to kind of get things settled in. But some of us have been around teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching and we still have basic questions about the nature of God and we should be beyond that I'm not being critical but but let's just let's just let's be honest Phillips had three years in the very presence of Jesus and he still has these questions and Jesus says I've been with you long enough for you to know me secondly Second part of verse 9, he says it again, repeats it. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The length of time in discipleship should lead to an understanding of the unity of God, or another way to say this, to the Trinity. We should understand God's triune nature. He's one God, three persons. So for them, they've had enough time to have confirming evidence that Jesus and the Father are one. They will come to know about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And as we get to John 16, we will talk about that in the days ahead. But the very nature of God had been seen in the life of Jesus, and it should have been enough. So I can't this morning. I love it. It's glorious. The Trinity is true. It's clear through the New Testament. I can't perfectly describe its glorious nature. Three persons, one God, but that's what the Bible teaches. It's there. So, so he's challenging them, and I think he's challenging you and I this morning, that if we're going to move deeper in maturity in our faith, we are going to embrace the fullness of the nature of God, even aspects that blow our minds, and it's hard to wrap our minds around them. And so he reminds them again, Philip, you've been with me long enough to know this, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Listen to these words in Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, Jesus speaking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him why do we need to know jesus he reveals the father why do we need to know the glorious nature of the father is that he puts forth the son why do we need to know the glorious nature of the holy spirit you know what the main role of the holy spirit is to come and magnify jesus yes and dwell us but to magnify 
Jesus. So length of time in discipleship should lead us to know Christ. Length of time in discipleship should lead us to understand the nature, the unity of God as the Trinity. And thirdly, the length of time in discipleship should remove immature questions about God's nature. So look how Jesus closes verse 9. So how, how are you still asking Philip? Why are you still asking me for me to show you the Father? I've told you, I've been showing you the Father, and I've revealed the Father to you. So how can you say this, show us the Father? Questions we will always have, right? About faith, we will. But over time, listen, our questions should mature. Dinosaurs. When did they exist? You know what I know to be true? They existed. We have bones and we have fossils. Mature faith doesn't stay grounded in unanswered questions about how does all this fit. Mature faith gets to the place where it wrestles with the nature of God in the midst of our pain. You ever been in deep pain, deep trouble, deep heartache? The dinosaur question doesn't fix anything. But you know what does? Knowing the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that will sustain us to get through things. So let me give a few more things that we must move beyond. We must move beyond, is the Bible true? You will never mature. None of us will mature if we question the Bible for the rest of our lives. Why read something that we don't trust? Another question is, is the incarnation real? Did God really take on flesh? You and I will never mature unless we understand that because you, do, you can't understand the cross unless you understand the incarnation, that God came and He came to bear our sin in His body on the cross. We should move beyond questions like, well, do Christians have to go to church? Yes, they do. They do. They go to church. Well, do I, do I, do I really need to read my Bible? Yes, we need to read our Bibles. And so it's important for us, as we see Jesus dealing with these men, he's invested three years, the greatest discipler ever, Jesus. And they're wrestling with the understanding of this. And he's telling them, men, you've had enough time, not to have it all perfectly down, but you have had enough time to understand that you don't have to ask about who the Father is because I've told you who He is. And so our questions and our wrestlings of faith should move on. We will have questions. I have them. Should move on to deeper things, right? They should move on to, to deeper significant things that reveal that we are really wanting to dig deep into who he is. Let me give you a perspective of maturity. The Apostle Paul was a Christ-hater, church persecutor. He was on his way to a place one day, and he was going to do some more damage. And Jesus says, hello, one day, and knocks him from his horse, bright light. Paul's first words are, who are you, Lord, interestingly? knows that the Lord must have, somebody really powerful has knocked him to the ground. And for three days it says that Paul's blinded and he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. And for three days he's 
thinking about, so what do I do with my life now? What am I going to do? And at the end of those three days, a guy is sent named Ananias. He lays his hands on Paul. These scales fall from his eyes. And it says immediately Paul just began to pursue Jesus. And it was his passion the rest of his days. And so he's in a prison cell in Rome. He had founded a church in a city called Philippi, and he wrote back to them, and he talked about this. Listen to these words. This is what maturity looks like. Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it mine, my own. Why do I press on to make it my own? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, don't, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but here's one thing that I do. This is what I do. This is what a mature Christian does. Listen to this. Forgetting what lies behind. I can't go back. Well, don't we all, if we could go back, wouldn't we change some things? Can we? We cannot. So what do we do? We can't go back there. Don't go back. Strain forward pursue God. He says this, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but here's what I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. So I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he writes these words, Philippians 3.15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? That I, I can't go back and deal with what I used to be. But here's what I can do. I can pursue Jesus because He has made me His own and I want to know Him. And so my passion and my pursuit is to know the One who has gripped me and He's made me His own and I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. And Paul says the spiritually mature think this way because over time they come to know that the treasure is Jesus. He's the point of everything. Now I want to ask you to turn back just for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 6. So we begin to finish up. Why is there so much lack of maturity? Why is there aspect of things in our lives where we seem to move forward in the way that we need to move forward? And God speaking through Jeremiah to a people where destruction is going to come and they're going to be sent away. Let me give you four things, and we see these things around us all the time. Let me give you four things that keep us from maturity, and then we're going to give you, I'm going to give you the answer. Clear verse 10. First part of Jeremiah 6 is this coming doom and coming that's, that's happening, and here's the reason why it's coming. Jeremiah 6.10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They had closed their ear to the word of God. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And so God's saying, listen, the, the, the trouble's going to come and you're not going to mature and you're not going to walk in my way because you've shut off your ears in listening. And we live in a land and we live in a time where the closing off of listening to the Word of God has happened. And so now, next he says, look at verse 13. Here's the next thing that permeates our 
culture today. He says, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. The second reality is this, is everybody in the culture was following what was in. And what was in was false. It wasn't true. And we live in a day and time of Isaiah chapter 5. The things that are good we call wrong. And things that are bitter we call them sweet. And, and the world's just turned upside down. And it's turned upside down because the world has, has embraced what's popular. Even though it's false and it's not true and it's done damage. Now look at verse 14. Look what was going on in the country. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. They haven't really done the work that needs to be done. And then they just say this. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Third thing that will keep us from maturity. First one is to close our ears to the word or to just grab onto whatever's in and whatever's popular, regardless whether it's true or not. Thirdly, in verse 14, they ignored sin and the real healing that can only come from God. And here's what they do. Now listen to me. Our nation is in trouble. And what you will hear in our nation is peace, peace, peace. Everything's great. And it is not great. It's not. And what we need is a revival of the people of God. That's what is needed. And when God's people are awakened to the truth and the nature of who God is, and they walk in His ways, then God begins to do something. Peter says judgment begins at the household of God, indicating the work begins with God's people. So that means God needs to do work in this life right here. I need Him to do heart work. I need Him to do work in my mind. I need to press on. I need to forget what's behind and I need to move forward. Fourthly, look at 15. We live in this day as well. So were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So listen, we live in a day and time, even in the church, where many people have closed their ears off to the preaching of God's Word. And they've gathered around themselves, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, to get people to, to tell us what we want to hear. So not only has that happened, but people just embrace whatever the newest thing is and just follow it wherever it goes, and follow it, read it, follow it, read it, follow it, read it. Thirdly, is that the church for far too long has ignored sin and just said, peace, peace, everything's actually great when it's not great, and it's not true. And lastly, there's a lost sense of shame that comes with sin. So encouraging, right? Is there an answer? Absolutely. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for ancient paths, 
where the good way is and walk in it. And guess what will happen? You'll find rest for your souls. Look how 16 ends. Wow, how the people respond? No thanks, God. We're not going to walk in that. We will not walk in your way. Why is there so much lack of maturity in the church? Well, it happens when God's Word is closed and we shut our ears off. It, it happens when we just follow whatever is there and we don't follow truly what the Scripture has said. It, it happens when we ignore sin and we proclaim peace and this superficiality when it's not there and there's a lost sense of shame in regard to sin. And so what's needed? What's needed is for God's people to stand at the road and to look, examine, think, and then ask, Lord, give me the path that's ancient. Yes, it's old, but it's, but it's life. It's hope. It's everything that I need because on that road, I will find rest for my souls. Why is our nation so tired? Why is the church so tired? Could it be that we've abandoned the path that He's called us to walk in? Because if this is true, and by the way, it is true, we will find rest for our souls if we will walk that way. Will we be tired? Yeah. But you can be tired and find rest, right? Because the confident trust is in the nature of God. But we cannot be, and I think for far too long, the response has been what we see at the end of 16. But the people said back to God, we're not going that way. We're going to go our way. And we have ended up at a place of so desperately needing Him to awaken us in these days. So again, I want to remind you, He's talking to the eleven who had been with Him for three years that they needed to come to the place of embracing the revealed nature of who Christ is. Ultimately, our faith life is grounded in belief. Believing who Jesus is. So look at 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Second time he's repeating that. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Three important things, and they're brief. One, we must believe that Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. If you're 11 in the room this morning, if you're 79 in the room this morning, we must get to the place that everybody in between, we must get to the place that we get it that the Father and the Son are one. We must understand the nature. Secondly, we must understand that the words of Jesus are authoritative because they're connected to Jesus and they are connected to the Father. They've come from the Father. So Jesus says in the second part of verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. 
He is speaking in the... Jesus had great authority, but He is speaking in the authority of His Father. And lastly, He says this, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So the Father dwelling in Jesus, Jesus dwelling in the Father, did these great works that should have fostered, watch this, should have fostered belief and faith and trust in the nature of God. Let me give you just a few closing illustrations. Do we have enough evidence in the Bible in the works of Jesus that Jesus did in the lives of people to believe that He's the Son of God? I say yes. Let me tell you something. There was a woman who lived a painful life for 12 years. All day long, she had a bleeding condition. Jesus was passing through her city one day and she worked her way through the crowd and reached out her hand and touched his clothes. And immediately after so much work of years and years of work going to physicians, immediately right there in that moment, she was healed. And he stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding us? Do you see all of these people? And he's like, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me. And power went out. That story is enough for everybody in the room this morning to believe in Jesus. This past week, Jesus, we were walking through the streets of Kathmandu one day. And we encountered a leper. And it's nasty to look at. He was begging. And in Mark 1, this leper comes up to Jesus and says, I love how he approaches Jesus. Lord, if you're willing, would you make me clean? Y'all remember what Jesus did? Did he go, unclean, unclean, get away? Is that what he did? What did he do? He touched him. He touched him. And when he touched him, what happened? He was healed. That story is enough this morning, that work of Jesus, to believe. If that's not enough, how about this one? There's a guy that was out of his mind. He lived in a place called the Gadarenes. He was possessed by demons. The people in the community used to chain him to the tombs with iron chains. He would have demonic episodes and he would break free. Jesus showed up one day, cast the demons out in some pigs, and they ran off a cliff, and the people in the town are like, what happened out there? And they came out, and one of the saddest things that said in the New Testament, they asked Jesus to leave. We don't want you to be around because of what you did. But one of the most beautiful things is in that text. It says this, and the people saw the man that they used to chain. They saw him sitting in his right mind, calm. See, that story is enough to believe today if that's not enough same guy Saul persecutor of Christians his very first words were who are you Lord his last words that we know that he ever said were written in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 when he said this I have fought the fight I have kept the faith run the race and I've finished it 
And now what is in store for me is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will give me, and not only to me, but to everybody who has longed for his appearing. This transformative thing that Jesus did in the life of Paul is enough in this room this morning for you and I to believe and trust in Jesus. He transforms lives of God-haters. Lastly, all across this room this morning, is evidence of the work of God. He's changed us. Are we perfect? No, never going to be until one day when we, we, when we see him as he is, we will be as he is. So it is enough today, Jesus says to the 11, if you can't wrap your mind around what I'm telling you about, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Look at the evidence of what I can do. And that's enough for you to believe and to trust in me. What hope we have that there's counsel from the Scripture on how to know God and how to walk with Him and how to walk in freedom. But it's time for God's people to stand at the roads and ask and look and to ask and to walk in the path that's ancient but it's life. And when we walk in that path, we will find rest for our souls. And there will be some who claim to be Christians who will say, we're not walking that way, but what about us? What if we today said, no, we will walk that way. We will be the people. Maybe others are going to say, we're not going to walk in it, but we are going to be the people who walk in your ways. And that we would experience a move of God in our midst that would be transformative that would increase our faith and our trust and our understanding of the nature of God. Christ wants you and I to know who He is and through Him know the glorious nature of the Father. Let's pray.